It was my absolute honour this week to speak with Marcia Kilgore, founder of some of our most loved brands, including Bliss, Soap and Glory, Fit Flop and most recently Beauty Pie. Marcia's very much a heroine of mine and having never met her, I was a little apprehensive, never mind the fact that Oprah has interviewed her. But my goodness, what a phenomenal woman. Growing up in Canada and losing her father aged just 11. I don't want to spoil the adventure you're about to hear, but what I will say is that Marcia takes us on the most incredible journey, encompassing the magical entrepreneurial mix, a bit of luck, a touch of fate, and unwavering grit and determination. In an interview that I'll treasure forever, her letter is one of the most profound to be shared. It's capturing stories and lessons like Marcia's that are my greatest honour to give back to this most colourful community. Oh, and as an extra treat for our listeners this week, Marcia has given you an exclusive Beauty Pie code, which gives you one month's free membership to Beauty Pie. So have you got something to scribble down the code with? The code is Holly sent me. So happy shopping. I do hope you enjoy listening to this interview as much as I did recording it. Bow your head and let your eyelids close on down. Where we're going, you won't need to bring your frown. I'm Holly Tucker and welcome to Conversations of Inspiration. Back in 2006, I founded Not On The High Street for my kitchen table. And since then, I've gone on to launch Holly & Co., I'm the UK ambassador of Creative Small Businesses, and I believe that having a business doing what you love is the key to a happy, fulfilled life. My dream is to help everybody start theirs. I'm here to offer advice, inspiration, wisdom and encouragement. And in my view, the best way to do this is by sharing stories. So I've reached out to my favourite small businesses, entrepreneurs and those who simply inspire me and ask them to share theirs. Here are my conversations of inspiration. Marcia, I am so excited to speak to you today. A true hero of mine, and Oprah hailed you as one of the most inspirational women she has ever met. And it's pretty unbelievable to think that over the last two decades, you've created and built five businesses, each one delving into these most amazing products and amazing women that you're supporting. And I mean, I've never interviewed anybody that Oprah has interviewed. I mean, this is a moment. Well, I actually am thrilled and delighted and honored to be interviewed by both you and Oprah. (laughs) So we're all in it together, right? I think I am a little bit like the Forrest Gump of female entrepreneurs that end up in all these kind of crazy situations. Well, what an honor. And, you know, for those out there who don't know all of the brands that you've created, let's just run through them. It's Bliss Spa, the original Fit Flop, Soap and Glory, and now, of course, the Brilliant Beauty Pie, which we're going to come on to at the end of this interview because I'm an avid fan of it. I'm a customer. But I really wanted to sort of start from the beginning. And the beginning, beginning, actually, is that we're sort of what? half a year of lockdown. Yeah, it's been crazy, hasn't it? Where are you recording from at the moment? How's this time been for you? Right now I'm in a little studio that I use for inspiration and to, you know, follow up on all the work that I've got to do that's super quiet beside a train station in Switzerland where I live. It's like a little warehouse, very humble, 
but I kind of like it that way because it keeps me real. Yeah. <laughs> I like to always remember where I came from and not get too far away from that. I always um, would say that if you have too far to fall, it hurts a lot more when you do. <laughs> Already, well, we're a minute into the podcast and I'm learning something new. Is that something that you were told or you've learned from experience? I think, you know, my mom is very humble. She's uh, someone who's always taught me, you know, what the important things in life are. I remember when I was able first to just buy her a cashmere scarf, right? This was maybe when I was 25 or 26 and I thought I'm really going to treat my mom. I was living in New York and she was living in Canada where it could get really cold in the winter. And I sent her a cashmere scarf for Christmas and I asked her if she had worn it a few you know, months later. And she said, no, I don't want to show off. I can't wear that. <laughs> I said, well, just wear it to work because you walk to work, you know, in minus 40 degree weather. She does it to keep herself real. She's like, well, I can't. I don't want to show off at the office. And I'm like, yeah, but your ears are falling off from the cold. <laughs> So I guess it must be genetic. You know, you just can't get rid of that. I'm not a show off. Success, it comes in many different forms, right? There's financial success, there's family success, there's friendship success. So I don't like to think of success as just being financial. But if I do have financial success, I, you know, it's not about showing it off. It's actually just more fun to be good at something. And and you're measured that way, I suppose. I totally agree. So you talk about Canada. That's where you grew up, didn't you, in your early childhood. What was that like growing up there? But also I read that you wanted to be a backup singer for Ray Charles. Is that right? That would have been my dream. <laughs> you know, so cool. The idea of kind of traveling around and singing gigs and, and being in the music industry, that would have been so creative, just kind of sexy, right? Yeah. Canada, when I was growing up, we had one television channel, Canadian Broadcasting Company. There was really not that much to do. It was a lack of mental stimulation. I remember waiting for the newspaper to show up and I would literally read the newspaper front to back three, four times a day, just because there was information in there. And I just wanted some kind of connection to the outside world. It was not necessarily the place for my brain to be taken advantage of. So I had to find a lot of extra things to do to fill my time and to stimulate me. You were very young when your father died of a brain tumor. Yeah. You were just 11 years old. How did that affect you at such a young age, losing a parent? I will um, come into this with my letter to myself. And I've learned, I guess it's a, it's a learned behavior to think of everything as a gift. Mm -hmm. So anything that happens to you is a gift. And at the time, you don't know it. Yeah. And it was obviously very hard to have that instability in my family. And my mom really struggled. You know, after he passed away, we were quite poor. Uh, we actually lived in a house that was subsidized by the government when we moved back to Saskatchewan to be near her family. So we were, you know, really struggling to make ends meet. And at the time, you know, it was incredibly sad to lose him. And obviously it was very difficult to see my mother struggle like that. You know, some people will say, okay, you know, my mom was a rock. My mom was not a rock. Right. right? So I didn't have someone telling me, it's going to be okay. Don't worry. We'll get through this. It was me saying, don't worry, mom. Okay. I'll get some part-time jobs. I can deliver newspapers. I can do this. I can do that. Just because there was, I felt anyway, a gaping hole in, you know, the environment for someone to say, don't worry, we'll, we'll get through it. Yeah. So I guess I've always become the one who was like, okay, let's figure out what to do. What else can we try? And 
I think that that, while it was incredibly hard at the time, and especially when you're like 11, 12, going through puberty, right? Your brain is all mush anyway. I think that it really trained me to learn how to lead and think and be resourceful and come up with solutions. And so while it was horrible, it was also some very, very early training and grit and determination, mm -hmm. which is super important if you want to be successful in anything that you do. You really worked that muscle, didn't you, from a young age and it became strong. And But I want to jump forward to then at 18, you went to get a scholarship at Columbia in New York, but there was a problem with your tuition payment. This sort of twist of fate actually started this whole new journey for you. What was that time in life like for you? Because I know that you arrived there with only a few hundred dollars, is that right, in your pocket? And this was the sort of start of some entrepreneurial motion in your life, wasn't it? Yes. You know, it was um, quite funny because my mother, when I graduated from high school, gave me a, a backpack that doubled as luggage. <laughs> By the time she had raised three girls on her own, I think she was just exhausted not that I was difficult. I was, you know, I studied hard. I worked several part-time jobs through high school, but she was just ready, you know, for me to go. And I could understand that. And my sister <laughs> lived in New York and she said I could come and stay with her and I could go to Columbia. So I had written the SAT, which most Canadians don't do, but I thought, well, I'll be going to Columbia. So let me see if I can get in. And I got accepted. It was the first year that Columbia accepted women because it used to be Columbia and Barnard. So that was very exciting. And my sister at the time had, she was making quite a lot of money. She was a, a model at the time and making a lot. And I think she had just miscalculated her taxes one year and just didn't have what I needed when I got there to put forward for tuition. So I had to let my spot at Columbia go. And then I had to figure out, well, here I am in New York. I was living with her, so I didn't have to pay rent. So that was great. I had my $300. <laughs> she was kind enough to let me clean her house for $15 an hour, which back then, that was a lot. That is a lot. <laughs> yeah. And I have to say, it wasn't the best cleaner. I, <laughs> I would, you know, probably work half an hour and charge her for three. <laughs> My other sister's boyfriend's brother owned a gym in Saskatoon. And he said, hey, you should come down to the gym because he knew I was sporty. I used to run a lot. So I went to the gym and they had the reigning Miss Canada bodybuilder train me. <laughs> By the time I was 18, moved to New York, I had won a couple of bodybuilding titles. Yeah. Not like a big, you know, I was not Arnold. I looked more like an Olympic athlete, kind of. So when I did first get to New York, I ended up going to this great gym, which was full of celebs. You know, Jean-Claude Van Damme worked out there and his wife, Gladys Portuguese, worked out there and all these like filmmakers and budding fashion people. It was kind of like the hot place to go. So I had no idea this would happen, but because I had, I guess, a body that certain people would want, I would get approached by, not in a sexual way, <laughs> by, you know, film directors or fashion people and like very often like gay men would come to me and go, I want to have a body like yours. Could you be my personal trainer? So I ended up being a personal trainer for a lot of the guys at this gym. And it was funny because there were other personal trainers there who were actually real personal trainers, right? Yeah. But they were the really muscly guys. But these people didn't want to look like those muscly guys. They wanted to look like me. So I started, I think my very first personal training client, I just saw him in the news the other day, was a gentleman named Douglas Keeve. He then referred me to somebody else. And I ended up with people like Carrie Fisher and Paul Simon and all of these. 
But I wanted to go back to school because I knew that, you know, jogging people around Manhattan and making them run the stairs of their high-rise buildings could only last so long. And I could only do that six, seven times a day without collapsing. So I wanted to be able to go back to school. And NYU had a part-time program for like adults. But then my skin got really bad because I was sweating all day. And one summer, you know, long story short, I decided to take a facial course. So I ended up learning how to give facials. And then my wonderful personal training clients let me do facials on them after I personally trained them just because they trusted me. And then suddenly opened up, not suddenly, I guess after some time, just a one room little studio where they could come and have a facial. And it was a little bit more professional than lying on the floor in my apartment. <laughs> you know, those were fun days, but it was a little more professional to have, you know, a proper bed, proper table, a little, you know, desk, a changing area. That was good. Was that when you decided the word bliss would be adorned on the front? Or was that the beginning of it? Oh, that was way before. Because you basically then have ended up going from this one room into starting your spa bliss, which became this huge success. You know, the absolute go-to spa in New York. You know, you had Oprah, Madonna, Calvin Klein, to name a few. That was a moment. You were revolutionizing product. I think you were about 26 and you had this phenomenal, successful business. And I can only imagine how hard you worked because you're actually talking about how, you know, you went from this room into creating bliss. What was this driving force? You kind of have to realize yourself that there are opportunities and it's almost like a string unwinding to open up all of the opportunities to you. And I always talk to people about connecting your dots, right? Mm. It's like a connect the dots puzzle. So as you add dots, right, you can draw new pictures. And the more dots you have, the more intricate the picture could be or the more unique the picture could be. And that picture is your life. And it's also your opportunities. So you add dots to your page and you have all different kinds of opportunities. So I always encourage people to just add dots. Yeah. And like add dots one at a time and that's it. Yeah, I absolutely love that. So tell me, so Bliss started, you were now at this point where you had, am I right, two spas in New York? Yeah, so we opened the first Bliss in 1996. And then the second one, I believe, in 1999. I wanted to just take a moment, though, because I read that during the terrorist attacks in New York, that you opened your spas to help people. Can you just share the story about that? Because it must have been incredibly traumatic. Wow, yes, incredibly traumatic, actually. We had two spas, then one in Soho, which was where we started on Prince Street and Broadway, and another on 57th Street. And we had also then our warehouses for our mail order catalog and the headquarters where we took bookings. So we had our booking center and then we had our mail order catalog and distribution center for the wholesale business. And it was right across the water in Brooklyn. So literally I was walking to work that day and I heard a big bang when I stopped at one of those coffee trucks. And my husband who was with me said, ah, he made a joke that they must have bombed the World Trade Center because a year before that, they had tried to bomb one of the parking lots. Yes. And I remember walking into the office and anyone who was in the office came running at the front door just saying, a plane hit the World Trade Center, a plane hit the World Trade Center. And from our office, we were directly across the water from it. We could see it. Mm. So all you saw was sort of a hole and a lot of smoke coming out. And it was 
terrifying. And we were at the window watching and then another one hit. And then you knew, oh my God, right? Mm. And it was incredibly scary. So first couple of days, you're just trying to figure out what to do and make sure that the area is safe. And, you know, it was shocking. But in Soho, that was happening. On 57th Street, people were still buying shoes and booking facials. Mm. And that was what was crazy. It was like, if it's not right in front of you, you don't even know what's happening. So we just decided, hey, we have a space. It's below Houston Street. There was no traffic allowed below Houston Street, but people were walking, looking for people. And the firefighters were there, right? And they were really in tremendously bad shape. So there were a lot of these guys who were working and then just exhausted and needed somewhere to go and shower and kind of, you know, just cry. Mm -hmm. So we had, we brought in clients, actually. We had people who were therapists who came to the spa and helped talk to people who were in distress, whether it was a firefighter or a customer or even not. We just put posters up all over the place and said, we're open if you need food or therapy or a shower or just whatever we could do to help. Because I also felt like our employees, right, the team members, they wanted to do something to help. Yes. And it would be so good for them to be able to participate in helping at a time like this because they felt like they could somehow, you know, contribute even though we were all really helpless at the time. On that note, it makes you realize how those of us that have physical stores, they are part of the soul of the city, the soul of the town. And so opening your doors in that moment of crisis was so crucial to those that you helped. And it wouldn't happen if we didn't have these cities and these communities. Yeah, I agree. So you went on to actually sell your first business in 1999. And although you stayed with the business for a few years, Soap and Glory was your next business, another beauty-led brand with a line of Bath and Body Cosmetic Products, loved the tongue-in-cheekness of the whole tone of voice. It's brilliant packaging out there. And I know that you had a list of lessons that you took from one business to another. I'm only on my second business, so I have not on the high street, and I've gone on to Holly & Co. One of them, you said, was on making mistakes. The worse it is, the faster you learn. I want to scream that from the rooftops because, you know, when you're in those most horrific moments, and they're horrific, you do learn the most. Absolutely. There's a study of something called epigenetics. Have you heard of it? No, I haven't. You just talk about how experiences actually get into your DNA. They get into sort of the vibration of the water in your body, and that's how you learn. I mean, they give an example like anxious rats, right? They made certain rats anxious when they were pregnant. And the offspring of those rats were also anxious because the rat was anxious while pregnant, whereas the offspring of the other rats, they were not. So you think about how just experiences that people have, right, will form them and then form also their offspring. And it It's not learned. It's actually happening in the womb. In the DNA. It's in the DNA. And there's a lot of information and new research coming out about this. You know, you almost have to make your own mistakes, like have that pain to learn and do it differently the next time because you won't always believe somebody else. You have to experience it yourself and get it into your vibration so that you don't 
do it again. And it's kind of like um, I used to assume the worst, right? And sometimes if I assume the worst, I would then act on that and then I would regret acting on that. It just took one time to be quite so painful to me that I learned and it was like, I'm never jumping to conclusions again. If I feel like that, I'm going to step back and I'm going to gather more information before I do that. But it took a really painful experience to actually stop doing it and to learn a new behavior. And so I don't remember what the question was, Holly. But I mean, who cares? Who cares? I mean, just everything you say, I'm just like, I'm going to go and have a tattoo of it after this podcast. The worst it is, the faster you learn. But I want to go on to another thing you've said, which I, again, it's on the other arm, the tattoo on the other arm. Never hire somebody for a big entrepreneurial job that hasn't done that job or anything big and entrepreneurial before. People fall in love with the idea of the excitement of a startup, but the idea and the execution are two very different things. And I have many a war scar on that little point that I have taken into Holly and Co. So tell me about that briefly. You know, it's really hard um, when you are trying to set up any new business, right? Because very often people say, well, you've got to hire people who have the experience so that you can scale, right? Correct. If you want to move faster, you have to hire for tomorrow, not for today. And to some extent, that's true. But to quite a lot of extent, what we don't realize is entrepreneurial businesses. Remember Howard Schultz and Starbucks? You know, he has a great book. I mean, it's an old one now. Yeah. But when you start reading into it, you realize it took him 17 years to get the word Starbucks well-known, right? It's 17 years of hard slog. If he would have hired someone who was prepared for tomorrow on, you know, month two, that would have been a lot of money paying somebody who doesn't have the, not to say, it could be the attributes. It could be just like the roll up your sleeves and figure out how to do it yourself. It's very different than when you're actually trying to put things into columns and, and categorize things in bigger, broader strokes. Entrepreneurs will figure out how to do absolutely everything the cheapest way possible. That's what we do. And it's, you know, very different to then come from a large company where there are huge budgets against things and expect everything to come to you so you can organize it into, you know, nice little baskets. And so I have, in some businesses, just relied on myself for the first three or four years, which is slow. Well, I just don't know if there's any other way to do it. Because when you do hire someone who is from a larger company, it's not the same skill set. Each week, I sit down with a cup of tea and write my weekly Friday email, Holly's Desk Notes. I share everything I've been up to, thinking about or working on in the past week. I genuinely love it. And it's a real moment in my week when I stop, sit down and put pen to paper. You'll often find recommendations for my favourite small businesses and what they create, details of places or events I've been to or think you'd love, recent articles from our advice hub, the latest Holly Loves collections, or perhaps sharing what's been happening in my world outside of Holly & Co. Not only that, but by joining our email community, you'll be the first to hear about all the exciting updates throughout the year. Be that our shop independent campaigns, our tours across the country, and let's not forget the independent awards. 
If you'd love to hear our latest news, advice and inspiration, follow the link in the description below to join our newsletter community or head on over to holly.co where you can easily sign up. Now, let's get back to our conversation of inspiration. I think maybe in my journey with Holly & Co, I'm realising that I have to gain a new type of muscle for this business in order for me to even be the conductor of the business. So I can't peak too soon. You said there are never any shortcuts. Mm. And I think that that's part of the same conversation, isn't there? Because you've got to go through the treacle. You've got to have all the falls to almost understand how this business's DNA feels yeah. in order for you to even begin to pass it on to somebody else who might lead a department or go and talk on behalf of yourself to external people. Especially if you are doing something as disruptive and new and nobody has done before and nobody knows that vibration. Like I love the word vibration. Yeah, Everything has its own vibration. People do, businesses do, brands do, cities do, right? And when you're trying to create a new one, of course, it's on its own wavelength. It's almost like the world is full of wavelengths and you have to figure out how to get through all these wavelengths to find that wavelength. And that's a very individual job. And you can't outsource it if you're the one who sees it, right? You can see this vision and you have to make sure that that vision is clear and uninterrupted before you can then hire people to come in. If you hire people, I think also too early, They'll have their own opinions about it. And you can end up getting off course because they think, oh, no, it shouldn't be like that. It should be like this. It's like, wait, wait. And you have that moment, don't you, where you go, whoa, I hired this expert in. I should really listen to them because this is exactly why I did this. And actually, no, the time for expertise can come. Right now, I am the expert because I'm basically, I am creating this. So I need to be allowed to create my trust yourself. And when I think about everything you've created, you have this sort of magical ability, this sixth sense almost to create products that people want to buy. And I'm a completely product obsessed. That's my whole life. I always laugh that I'll be getting into my well, I won't be getting into my actual coffin, but I'll be there. <laughs> With all your stuff. I'll be like, how come coffins haven't been updated yet? Oh, I agree. You know, there's a whole product range in coffins, but that's a whole other business I need to keep quiet in my mind. But what do you think is the secret behind great product development? Because I talk about this all the time. And I think from researching you, you, you say it quite simply about Well, I'll hand over to you. What is that sort of secret behind it? It's quite easy. I always just say, don't sell it if you wouldn't buy it yourself, right? For that amount of money. And if you would, then great. Then you're on because there will be a lot of other people who will also buy it too. With Beauty Pie, that's like the extreme. It's like my favorite thing to do in the whole time I've been in beauty is to go to these labs and look at all the stuff and know like this costs really not very much to make. And they would send me home with all these free samples. And I'd have these like boxes of things that came in, big boxes full of lots of products and feel like Christmas. That was what I wanted to bring to everybody because it was such a fairy tale. And then if you think, well, wow, what if everybody could get those boxes full of stuff that didn't cost very much? That's a fairy tale. We all want the fairy tale, right? 
So it's just being honest, I guess. Yeah. And also yeah. we talk about trust with customers. So when you are thinking, should we launch this product or not? Like the cap doesn't quite fit or the, you know, this, that, or the other thing. And you think, well, the correct choice, right? And the correct decision is always the one that increases your customer's trust. Always. Because if you choose the other one, very likely you're going to end up cleaning up more of a mess and making no profit. And that is just going to take a long time. This is going to be a longer path. Mm. So it can be hard because you have to mm. sacrifice mm. very often, you know, in the short term, but just get used to it. Then that's why if you're not so used to living the high life mm. and you don't really have to spend a lot to be happy and you have other things that fulfill you, you don't really care if you're a little short of money here or there because you're doing the right thing for the customer. And in the end, the growth and the trust that you have pays off more than, you know, 10 times. What amazing, amazing advice. And I have many businesses that will come to me over time who they found themselves in a place where I asked them, would you like what you sell? And now they don't. Would you buy what you create? No, but the margins are good. And then do you say, but do you love what you do? And they say, not anymore. And there is a direct correlation between, are you the customer? Are you passionate about it? Would you buy it in bucket loads? This is the place that you want to try and get to continuously. Yeah, for the thrill. The moment you don't feel like that, your warning bells should go off. Absolutely. And you have to look at why you don't feel like that anymore, whether it's a dynamic within the organization, somebody who's squashing your dreams. They say a lot of people are (laughs) unhappy because they don't have freedom. And freedom is very important for happiness and the ability to feel like you can do what you feel is right in order to move the dial. And I think as businesses get larger and it becomes more hierarchical, that can be difficult for people because some people are not natural collaborators and some things just don't even matter. There's also a lot of what I've learned in product development where you'll see people, you know, worrying about, well, do you think we should use like this shoulder on this cap or that shoulder? And you're like, no one will care as long as this stuff gets rid of their wrinkles. No one will know about the shoulder on the cap. And they're like, but you know, this shoulder doesn't match the other shoulder. I'm like, yeah, but we can get this one in stock. And I think they just want a shower gel now. Absolutely. And before we get on to Beautify, I just wanted to touch on that other business before Beautify, Fitflop. Fitflop has become a cult brand. It's sold in more than 60 countries. And I've read that it sold over 12 million pairs. Tell me about that person right now procrastinating over starting their first business. What advice would might you share? I would say if you are hoping to start a new business and you have a great idea, um, the first thing that you should do is check your idea against what I call the so what test. You explain your idea to either yourself or someone else and you have to be really objective about this. And in two sentences, you explain your idea and why it's important, why it's different, why anyone should care. And then they ask you the question, so what? And if you can't answer so what in one sentence, you need to go back and hone your idea more. Then if you have an idea that you can answer the so what question in one sentence and it makes sense and it sticks in your head and you just can't let it go because you know actually there is a need for this or you really want it and you can't find it anywhere else, then you have something 
to go for. But you have to be really harsh on yourself with your idea at the beginning. And where you should do most of the work is at the beginning to hone what it is your offer is, because it's a lot easier and less expensive to do it then than to do it five years down the line when you realize it isn't quite that unique or you've got a lot of competition and you want to think about that first. The whole thing is very, very simple, actually. Again, so what? Ask yourself, so what? Unbelievably, 2016 came along. You started two businesses, Sopa Duper. Am I right? Yes. That's not correct. A vegan bath and body brand. But then, of course, you then decided to do something else which disrupted the beauty industry called Beauty Pie. I am a huge fan and I love the fact that you went in and you've mixed it and messed it all up for everybody out there in the beauty industry because it is just fantastic. Lots of people think entrepreneurs take uncalculated risk. And you always talk about hedging your bets and having backup plans and that sort of mindset. So tell me about what that was when it came to Beauty Pie. Oh, Beauty Pie is such a whopper and it is so disruptive. Um, but I actually sold Soap and Glory to Walgreens Boots. Yep. And in the process of that, had a few interactions with some of the retailers that we also distributed with that opened my eyes. And let's just say they put some dots down in my, um, <laughs> in my dot to dot diagram to how the industry was moving and also how maybe there had been some mistruths in the dealings I had with some of them distributing soap and glory. And actually those mistruths and those new points of information really helped me to become more sure that doing something that was more all about the customer and not about the retailer. And I'd realized that for probably 15, 20 years, I have been working with retail partners who I assumed were really looking out for um, the best for my brand while we looked out for the best for their sales. And in that transaction, you realize that actually those retailers, some of them were really just looking out for themselves. Mm. And they also now, many retailers have their own brands. So they have little incubators and they create their own brands. So many new brands that you see actually belong to the retailer. Right. And the retailer will really push their own brands hard on their customers without their customers knowing that those brands belong to them so that they can make this huge margin. And you have to look at the dynamic now and think, well, how can you do what you love given the new dynamic in the system is... Retailers just make their own brands, which are private label, but nobody knows. And then they sell them to customers. And I thought, well, how do I eliminate the retailer? Because they will say that Facebook and Google are now the new landlords. 50 to 60% of the retail price of a product would go to the retailer. And now 50 to 60% of the retail price of a product would go to Facebook or Google because you have to advertise so much. Gosh, I never thought of it that way. So I thought, okay. This is a racket. <laughs> what do we do? How can we do this differently? And then I thought, well, you know, of course we want to work with the best labs and the best producers in the world. Yeah. They make the best stuff. I've worked with them for 30 years, so I know this and I know who makes what, where to go for the best lipstick, where to go for the best skincare. And I didn't know if they were going to be excited about this or if they were going to be really upset. <laughs> I was going to ask you that, you know, because you were basically sort of taking the mystery out of it all. Exposing. Yeah. It's like pulling back the curtain, right? And going, whoo, yeah. look, it's all the same cosmetics, the luxury quality cosmetics 
they're pretty much all the same. You just put maybe a different fragrance into it or a different color change. And usually most of the price of a skincare product is because of the packaging. So I wanted to turn that around also and make sure it was because of the ingredients and then eliminate all those crazy markups. So when we met our very first lab, we had already ordered what we thought would be two years worth of product because we thought if they bail on us, at least we have two years to get <laughs> somebody else to supply this. And I took them through. I remember going because they say when you're doing something really super disruptive, you need to explain it in small bite-sized chunks so that people can digest it and understand what's going on. So I literally had an 86-page PowerPoint about all the trends, Netflix, Spotify, right? Things that people subscribe to and they subscribe to so that they can access more. And this is the same idea with Beauty Pie, right? You subscribe and you can get five times more for your money. So I went through and I showed them all the trends that were happening around the world and talked them through it. And one of the gentlemen, who's a very elegant, conservative Italian gentleman, and he hugged me. Really? <laughs> he was so excited because he said, you know, all we ever see is people come in and they have like a new package or it's some new makeup artist. And, you know, it's great because it's business, right? And it's business development for them. But they don't ever have somebody come in with an, like a really new idea. And we then proceeded to go to all the smaller labs that we were also working with that are also elite, but not quite the linchpins. And they were equally excited. We're talking about a business that is factory prices, but they are of the standard of some of the best cosmetics and best skincare out there. You are disrupting this industry. Tell me about breaking this ground and being disruptive. Do you think you're going to do this all over again? Or is this your sort of swan song? Is this the thing that now is, this is my legacy? You know, after all of these years, everything I have learned, I'm going to wrap it all up in a box and call it Beauty Pie. You know, Beauty Pie is the big one because it is taking an entire industry and questioning whether what it's providing is actually good for women. Why do we have to pay to look at a poster? Why are we paying so much more than a product actually costs to make to be exposed to advertising on Facebook? You know, who's making that money? It's an old boys club, actually. Yeah. And it's not making us any more beautiful. Yeah. Because I wanted to make sure that if it was a swan song, and I do have one other idea, but it's not crazy disruptive, but it is an improvement on daily life. So... If it was going to be a swan song, it had to be profound. Mm. It's really profound to be trying to retrain people to realize that they don't have to pay more and they don't have to be rich to be worthwhile or feel good about themselves. They don't have to be in a position to be able to afford something ridiculously expensive to be worthy or equal. Everyone is equal. Isn't it beautiful that we can all afford really great products? It's sort of being able to teach the lesson of Dr. Seuss. What was that one with the stars, the sneeches? Oh, it's about these groups of sneeches that live on beaches. And some of the sneeches have stars on their bellies and other sneeches don't. And the star-bellied sneeches always talk about how they are superior to the sneeches without the stars. And someone realizes this dynamic is going on and makes a machine that puts stars on bellies. And so drives up onto the beach and starts selling, here, I'll put stars on your belly too, 
So you can be superior also. And then the superior ones realize that everybody's got stars. And so this guy comes along with a star removal machine and starts selling removal. And so the one person making the money is the guy with the machine who is working everybody, right, with this insecurity of, am I good enough? And I mean, Dr. Seuss was prophetic. You know what I also think is it's such a feminist product. It is making money out of female insecurity. We are sort of caught in a loop, aren't we, where as we become older, and I know I'm a skincare fanatic, we think we must spend because we're so frantically trying to fit into whatever we're deeming to be what we should be looking like. Um, you're using social media in the way that it should be used. You know, you're there, you're actually asking questions, you're actually getting proper feedback. So you're taking out that middleman and you're now connecting with your group with hashtag PiFam, which I absolutely love. And it's such an important part now, isn't it? And I know this from Holly and Combe where I've built, you know, I'm only on business number two, but there are no posters going up anywhere. The marketing line is quite a dry marketing line because I have my community. I have built Holly and Co on Instagram. I'm able to interact with my community all the time, every day. Is this now what you're seeing? You know, you've been there for so long. You've gone through all of this. Is that now what you're seeing the future as? I think it's just so much more efficient. Isn't it? It's so much more efficient to hear it direct from the horse's mouth, right? Mm. And there was this really incredible woman named Nancy Evans. She was an internet pioneer. She started iVillage, like God knows when, like 90s. And I ended up at one point on a board with her for, I think it was Dove, when they were doing the Real Women campaign. And I remember her saying one thing, which would be my tattoo. She said, listen to the women. The women will tell you what to do. And it's like, you know what? You don't know what to do? Go ask a bunch of women. Usually, Women are very helpful. They will be super happy to weigh in and help you solve a problem. You know, if you ask your community mm. for help, would you mm. like this, this, and this? What should we call mm. this candle? We have this new candle coming out. And usually we're naming our candles. You know, we'll put a little poll up and say, it smells like this. What should we call it? A, B, or C, right? And you will usually have a very clear winner. And then when that clear winner comes out, if you follow their direction, you'll sell tons of them. Yeah. And so if you can tap right into your customer's vibration yes. and make that your vibration, everybody is going to be happy because there's no friction. And so I guess that's the goal is to just stay on that really happy vibration and continue to create things and be more pure and just get better at it. Because, you know, Ray Dalio is actually one of my heroes. He's like this crazy hedge fund manager. He says, and I would agree that it's evolution, but in so many different ways, it's evolution, right? It's evolution in how you perceive yourself, how you deal with problems, how you put your business out there, how you learn and how you grow and how you improve. So I guess Beauty Pie is about evolving the beauty industry, evolving how I learn mm -hmm. and how I produce product and how I work with my teams and how I learn myself how to grow a business and, and interact with other people. So I think... Life and entrepreneurship, but just life is about getting better at it. Oh my goodness, yes. To sit back and learn, that should be our goal every day. And then those practices that we incorporate into our everyday being that make us happier and make us have that vibration that is good for us and gives us energy, 
you know, that is the goal. It should be about evolving to where we know what those practices are, what we know what to do in certain situations. If we feel like the vibration is wrong, you have tools and you can pull them out and then you can bring yourself back in. Yeah. And that is, I think, a really easy way, a focused way to look at it is like, okay, how do I evolve in this situation? How do I do better than I did last time? What did I learn before that I can apply now? And that is how I would look at it. My goodness me, my honestly, I'm coming up this podcast and I think I'm going to do everyone's head in because I'm literally going to go and say, that's it. That's, that's, anyway, I'm, I'm, it's, this is about you, not me. The one thing that we do share here, along with a number of things though, is a belief about retirement. And I'm very open actually, because everyone's wants to sort of have me sort of finish, if yeah, you see what I mean. Why, you know, so why, you've done, yeah, why aren't you laying on a beach somewhere? Yeah, exactly. I don't, what am I going to do? Sweat. I've openly said I'm retiring at 90. I'm taking Iris's lead. I'm going to have a ton of eccentric jewelry, big glasses, and I'm not going to worry about how much wine I drink at that point in time. I think you're the same, aren't you? Yeah. You know, when you think about the future and you think about your businesses and, and things like that, do you see you just continuing in this place? Are you happy as the person you are today? Yeah, you know what? I really am. And I think age brings that as well. Because again, you almost reach a certain amount of um, expertise about yourself and a certain amount. You've, you've had... you become an expert of yourself, huh? Yeah. And then you're just like, ah, oh, that really actually doesn't matter. And you're just enjoying almost watching yourself in a television show. <laughs> and you've seen that show before and therefore you know what to do, right? So you don't panic as much. You don't have as much to prove. The more you can recognize behavior and then the results of that behavior, you'll see other people doing it and you'll know what it is. And then you can kind of categorize it and you're not feeling like you're missing out anymore because you see, oh God, I did that. Yeah, <laughs> That didn't end so well. <laughs> yeah. So let them go ahead and do it. I'm not missing anything, right? There's a lot less fear of missing out, which I think leads to a lot of happiness. So we'll both be doing our equivalent of whatever the golf course is in many, many, many years time. Um, I end all my interviews and I can't believe it's the end, but I end all my interviews with this analogy um, that running your business is like being on this epic roller coaster. And I know from now speaking to you, one that you would never want to get off, but you're going to have pretty phenomenal skin on this roller coaster. That's what I blinking well do know. And for those of you who are listening, I'm looking at this woman's beautiful face and it is all true. It is all true. So tell me what has been one of your biggest lows on, on this journey? Okay, Holly. So I don't look at lows as lows. Okay. I honestly try to think back and think what was bad. And usually what will come up in my mind is what did I learn from that? Right. And why was that good? So I have been sued, right? I've had people quit on me. I've had someone ask me for a raise on Christmas Eve after having been out for three months in the hospital and then coming back, which when I was about 27, I thought like, really? <laughs> and that felt really, what? You just came back after three months out sick and you're asking me for a raise on Christmas Eve. I mean, that just felt wrong um, and still kind of sticks as you can see. <laughs> but is it a low? I needed to go there, right? I needed to go there in order to learn. Mm. There's been tons of hard times, but were they lows? No, they were learnings and they're getting me closer to an even keel and a vibration where there's much more success than not. Yeah. So I can't ever look at something as a real low. 
And I guess the same as the biggest highs. And yeah, so would you say that when you're, you know, the wind's in your hair? You know, there's just so many of them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there it's is. Hard, yeah. It's just hard to say one. I mean, every day I feel so grateful. I feel grateful for the small stuff. You know, we'll show up, somebody from Vogue posts about us on Instagram. And I'm like, oh, Vogue posts about us on Instagram. Or, you know, some an influence, Paulina Poriskova posted about Beauty Pie. She just posted a selfie, but there was a bunch of beauty pie stuff on her uh, counter the other day. And it was like, oh, that's so great. Or when you see someone who works for you, who's a more junior person who really grasps something new and really starts to fly, that's so exciting mm. because you see them come into their own and they get to the next level. And, you know, for my heart, I feel so proud. So those are really mm. high moments. I mean, there are just too many of them to choose one. Marcia, you, you are just amazing. And no wonder Oprah named you as one of the most fascinating and inspirational women. And I loved all your brands that you've created. I'm an avid Beauty Pie fan and now will be forevermore. And just talking to you as well, I just feel that, I don't know, I've met such a role model for my journey and I just can't thank you enough for spending this time with us today and sharing all that you have. But it's the end of the podcast now. And this is the moment that I hand over to you to read a letter that you've prepared to your younger self. And um, thank you on behalf of myself and everyone that's listening listening for sharing a part of your soul with us today. Oh, it's really been a pleasure and you're an incredible interviewer. So it makes it really easy because I think oh, well, you just sort of <laughs> tee it up and then all I have to do is kind of push it off. <laughs> <laughs> well, bless you for saying that. Over to you. Teamwork. Thank Teamwork. You. Okay. My letter to myself was actually an interesting experience in the writing because I realized that it's a very emotional thing to do. And I wanted to make sure that for anyone listening to it, they took my learnings out of it rather than necessarily focusing on the sad parts or, or the negative parts. So let's go. Dear Marcia, what may not be easy to see right now because you're still in your parents' house, in school, following a path that isn't your own, and dealing with the typical teenage girl cliques and bullying is that everything that's going to happen in the years ahead, from the elation causing to the heartbreaking, will teach you something and exercise a muscle that will prepare you for the sport that is going to be your life. And while it might seem that kids who are more outgoing and popular or whose home life is more stable have an advantage Never discount the incredible opportunity you have in learning how to work hard to pay for things yourself, to juggle part-time jobs to make ends meet, and to do things on your own. This, along with everything you experience that is hard, is actually a gift. And don't forget that your biggest challenges are at the same time your greatest teachers. So when you find yourself stumped or overwhelmed, or crushed or scared along the way, it's simply because you weren't prepared for what was about to happen to you. But you can be next time. Your emotions are highlighting for you what you still have to learn and where you, the leader of your life's own army, need to bring in the reinforcements. Those reinforcements will come through gaining knowledge and more understanding of yourself 
and that understanding will light up your path. The more hard things you go through, the more resilient you become, and resilience and resourcefulness will bring you peace. So when you find yourself struggling now, take some time to be silent and observe what you're thinking, and remember that there are two types of thoughts, helpful and unhelpful. Choose the helpful ones. They'll get you farther. Remember that a load is a lot lighter if you share it. Read as much as you can about anything and everything. Your world will be richer. Cherish your friends. Put as much effort into them as your business. Don't worry about working a lot. It's a good example for your kids who will emulate your work ethic. Don't jump to conclusions. Doing that often leads to regrets and mistakes. You have time to gather more information. Life is like a game of poker. You often have to play your hand without having perfect info. So practice, a good memory, and the ability to read people are all necessary. Wake up every morning and be grateful for the things you've got. Do favors for anyone who asks if you can find the time. Celebrate everyone like you would want to be celebrated. And when you become an adult, you'll realize that everything is your choice. And never miss a party if you can help it. Oh, <laughs> you're just going to sit there as an idol for me now. And um, because you know what? <laughs> it's about when you travel through this, women being vulnerable, open, honest about their journey. And that's what you've shared with us. And through that amazing letter that you are really putting out there, your true thoughts for us all to hear and what you have gained in all your wisdom through all these businesses, you're there. And I'm so grateful to have had this time. It's such an honor, a deep honor, actually. Thank you. Holly, I've had so much fun. I actually, when I just looked at you on the internet, I went, oh, I love her. <laughs> you just, you can just tell already. <laughs> so I knew we were going to have a great time. I think I love you too. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Bless you. It's been a real pleasure. If you've enjoyed this episode with Marcia, I'd love to suggest listening to my conversation with Alexia Ng, co-founder of Cult Beauty. You can find any of my past episodes by searching Conversations of Inspiration wherever you get your podcasts. And if we've helped or inspired you, would you mind rating and reviewing? Your support really does mean the world to me. It helps spread the word and will inspire more people to build a life they love. And for all our latest news, you can sign up to my weekly newsletter, Holly's Desk Notes, over at holly.co.